You're listening to a sermon preached at Chael English Ministry in Sydney. We believe that God speaks through His Word, the Bible. We pray that as you listen, you will hear God's voice and be moved to worship His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Hi everyone, it's good to see you. Uh, If it's your first time or if you're visiting, my name is Matt and I'm the pastor here at Chemistry. I'm excited. I am so excited. Uh, Romans is... A great book, to say the least. Uh, Preachers are not allowed to have favorite books of the Bible, but I have one. It's Romans. Romans is an excellent book. Um, If you have your Bibles on you, then I'm going to ask you to keep it open there at Romans chapter 1. We're going to go through this together. Um, Like I say, you can never trust in technology because you never know when it's going to let you down. So if you have a phone or a tablet or a Bible, then please keep it open there at Romans chapter 1. Man, um, I am so thrilled to dive into glorious New Testament book with you. It's going to take us a couple of months, and I think it's going to be, uh, hopefully, an excellent time for us. Friends, as we begin our sermon series in Romans, I wanted to show you very briefly that Paul, the guy who writes Romans, and Romans, the letter to the church in Rome, that they were loved and cherished by so many Christians throughout church history. Uh, One of the early church fathers, the great John Chrysostom, he said this, Put the whole world on one side of the scale and you will see that the soul of Paul outweighs the world. Man, not bad, right? What a quote. You got to think, like, what is John Chrysostom thinking to make him say that? Um, Or how about this one? Uh, One of his friends, Augustine, the great Augustine. He said this, I wish to have seen Christ in the flesh and Paul in the pulpit. Man. Or... A few hundred years later, the great reformer Martin Luther said this, Romans is the true masterpiece of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. It can never be too well or too much studied. Or uh, one of his contemporaries, the great reformer Philip Melanchthon, said this, in the epistle to the Romans, Paul declares that when we believe that God, for Christ's sake, is reconciled to us, Friends, this is the book that we're diving into together, and I hope you're hyped. If you're not hyped, get hyped. It's going to be awesome. It's going to change you. It's going to change me. The great William Tyndale said this, this epistle, Romans, is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament and the most pure gospel and also a light and a way in unto the whole scripture. Wow, right? What a thing to say about a book of the Bible. None other Then the great John Calvin said this, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, he's talking about Romans, we have an open door to the most profound treasures of Scripture. Later on, and much more recently, the great Bible teacher, R.C. Sproul, said this, no book has had such a powerful impact on my life as the book of Romans. Friends, I'm convinced that if we can understand and learn what the book of Romans says, it's going to change our lives. It's going to change our lives. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray, and I'm actually going to invite you to pray. And I want you to pray that today, and as we journey through Romans together, that God might speak to you in a way that you can understand, that he might show you things that he wants to show you, and that he would transform you and grow you and mature you, uh, and all of us actually. So let's pray. Let's pray that God might speak to us now in a way that we can understand.
Our loving Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who loves us and that you are a God who speaks to us. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us in and through your word, the Bible. Lord, we thank you that it is life and light to us. Lord, as we gather together as a church family now, we ask that you would help us to understand what this portion of your word is saying to us. Lord, help us to understand the logic of the text and help us to understand its application to our lives. And Lord, help us to be changed by it. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Friends, for most people, life just happens. Think about it. For most people, life just kind of happens. There's no real overarching theme. There's no real overarching purpose. There's no real driving force. For most people, they go about life with no passion. Life just kind of presents itself to us, and we just kind of deal with it. We just deal with it. Things happen, we deal with it one thing after the next. You go to school because your parents tell you to, and for some of us, if you don't go to selective school, you get disowned by your parents. If your parents push you hard enough, which is many of us, you end up at university. Our Asian immigrant society says that going to uni is a normal thing to do, so that's what our parents push us to do. You leave uni, you find a job, you get a job. You get yourself a mortgage, and at that point you say hello to your new slave master for the next 30 years. You go to work every day, every week, and each week you look forward to Friday night, right? TGIF. When the time comes, if you're lucky enough, you meet someone, you get married, you pop out some kids, and then you push them hard to follow the same path that you followed. Eventually, you fall over the line into retirement. Generally speaking, if you're a man, you're dead within a year or two. Um, otherwise, you retire and you just wait to die. Friends, that's life for most people. To be fair, that's life for most people. A few years ago, consultants in Australia did a management report on the Department of Community Services, also known as DOCS. Uh, they're not called DOCS anymore, they're now called Department of Communities and Justice. But a few years ago, these consultants did a management report on the Department of Community Services, and their purpose was to analyze their strategy, their management strategy. They did their research, they came to the conclusion that the management strategy of the Department of Community Services was, and I quote, running from one emergency to the next. Running from one emergency to the next. That's how they operated. And friends, I reckon that's how most of us operate our lives. Running from one emergency to the next. You always seem so busy. There's no overarching purpose. There's no just theme or driving fuel or motivator. Friends, for most of us, we just run from one emergency to the next. There's no passion about our lives. Maybe once in a while, you get excited about a game of basketball or the footy. Once in a while, maybe you get some thrill from an imaginary movie or a Netflix series or something like that. But for the rest of us and for the rest of our lives, life just kind of passes us by. There's nothing really to live for. There's nothing really to die for. Nothing really drives us. There are people who are exceptions. You see some artists, they're passionate about their craft. They're passionate about creating music. 
They're passionate about creating art, painting, whatever it might be. And you watch these guys, they, they sacrifice everything for their passion. Or you see some sports people, athletes, they've got one goal. Get that gold medal. Win that championship. Everything else in their lives is submitted under that goal. They're passionately pursuing that passion. Friends, there are exceptions, but for the most part, for most of us, life just happens. No great purpose, no great passion. Billions of people just running the rat race on that hamster treadmill. No great purpose, no great passion. Running from one emergency to the next, putting out fires as we go. Friends, today, we start a new sermon series in Paul's letter to the Romans, that is, the church in Rome. Paul the Apostle is writing a letter to the Christians in Rome. Today, in our time together, we're looking at the introduction to that letter, the intro where Paul introduces himself and he greets the readers, he greets the hearers. And right from the start, friends, we can see very clearly that Paul's life is in stark contrast to the lives of most people. Because Paul's life, as we can see, is filled with passion. Paul is filled with passion. He oozes passion. As one Bible scholar puts it, Paul is consumed by passion. Paul's whole life is driven by one overriding purpose, one overriding passion. Paul is willing to sacrifice everything to feed into his one purpose in life. Friends, you can see it there in the very first verse of the letter. Paul introduces himself. I mean, stop right there, right? How do most people introduce themselves? You go to the pub, you meet your friend's friends. How do most people introduce themselves? They talk about their name, right? They talk about what they do, maybe something about their family or something about where they're from. Hi, I'm Will Chan. I'm an accountant from Hong Kong. I'm married with one daughter. There's your standard introduction, right? For me, I say, hi, I'm Matt Kang, and people say, oh, aren't you Jane's husband? That's, that's what I get. That was a joke. It's a hard crowd. No one laughs. That's okay. We, thank you. We define our identity in certain ways. You know what? Just a side note. You guys are a very serious crowd. It's kind of scary. It's a very serious bunch. That's why I don't crack jokes. You guys might stone me. Please. We got to laugh once in a while. To be fair, much of Romans isn't actually funny. It's intense, but I just feel like once in a while, we just got to laugh at ourselves because we are funny. But my point is, we define ourselves in certain ways. We define our identity in certain ways. Look with me, friends, in your Bibles at Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Friends, look at how this man defines his identity. He says, who is he? Verse 1, he's a servant. He's a slave. Literally, he's a slave of Jesus Christ. That's how he introduces That's what he says about himself. I'm a slave of Jesus. Set apart for the gospel, the good news of God. Friends, Paul defines his whole identity by a reference to a man called Jesus. Paul defines his whole identity by reference to a message called the gospel. And in the next few verses, Paul outlines what he means by the gospel. He tells us a few things about it. First, he says that this gospel is something that was promised in the Old Testament. Look at verse 2. 
Verse 2 reads this, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then Paul goes on to talk about what the gospel is actually about. It's about God's son, God's human son, descended from King David in the Old Testament. Look with me in your Bibles at verse 3. The gospel regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Now friends, you may remember King David from the Old Testament. You might remember that God made promises to him, like the promise that one of his descendants would be God's own son. That was a promise. One of King David's descendants would be the ruler, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. Promises that we see, for instance, like in Psalm 2, he said to me, you are my son, ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance. Promises like that. Well, according to Paul, according to the gospel that he talks about, these promises have now come true. God has declared that Jesus is the powerful son of God. God has declared this, how? By raising him from the dead, by raising Jesus from the dead. And so this gospel that Paul is on about, this gospel tells us that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. This gospel tells us that Jesus is God's chosen king for all creatures. This gospel tells us that Jesus is the Lord. What is more? It tells us that he is our Lord, our boss, our master. Look with me at verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. The Son, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what Paul means when he talks about the gospel. The gospel is the good news about Jesus it's about how he died and rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures in the Old Testament. The gospel is the message about how God has made him, Jesus, our boss, our master. And for Paul, this message called the gospel has profound implications. In Paul's mind, if the gospel is true, the crazy implications to his life, it defines who he is. Paul says... He's a slave of Jesus. He's set apart for this gospel. And he goes on to say that it's changed his whole life. Because of Jesus, Paul has quit his job. Because of Jesus, Paul has left his home. Because of Jesus, Paul travels around telling people to believe in Jesus and to obey Jesus. Look with me at verse 5. Through him, that's through Jesus, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. The gospel has completely changed Paul's life. It's absolutely changed it upside down, inside out. It's changed radically. It's changed Paul's life. But as far as Paul's concerned, it's not just for him. It's also for the people in Rome, the people that he's writing to. They've been called to the obedience that comes from faith as well. They've been called to have faith in Jesus as well. They've been called to call Jesus their boss, their master as well. And so, look with me at verse 6. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And so then he goes on to greet them. He wishes them grace and peace from God. And notice how he describes them. Again, it's all in terms of Jesus, and it's all in terms of the gospel. He says, they've been loved by God. 
That's how he greets them. They've been loved by God. He says that they've been called to be God's holy people or saints. They've been called to be saints. Now, depending on which Bible translation you have, the word there might be saints or his holy people. It's not talking about extra special Christians. It's talking about Christians. But it's trying to explain to us that Christians, a.k.a. holy people, are called to be holy. We're called to be set apart by God. We're called to be holy like he is holy. Look with me at verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints or called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, can you see his passion? Can you see his oozing with passion? This guy is all about the gospel. He's all about Jesus. He's all about what God is thinking about in his mind. Paul is so passionate even here in the introduction. We're not even gone into the letter yet. He's so passionate. Friends, can you see also how Paul's own identity is defined by the gospel? Paul defines himself in connection with Jesus, in connection with the gospel. And friends, as we go on, we're going to see more of Paul's passion. Paul goes on to talk about how he's been praying for the Christians in Rome. He says, I've been praying for you. I've been thanking God for your riches, for your property. I've been thanking God for your faith. That's what he says. Look how gospel-minded he is. He's been thanking God that the Roman Christians, their faith is getting known everywhere. It's about their faith. It's about the gospel. Paul says he's been praying so that he can come see them. Why? So he can encourage them in their walk with God so that he can encourage them and that they can help each other to stand firm as Christians. Can you see his passion? Look with me at verse 8 to 12. Verse 8 to 12. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit, is preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness, how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times, And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Friends, can you see his passion? Can you see his gospel-centered, Jesus-rooted passion? His oozing passion, I mean, to start with, He is praying, like he actually prays, he actually does it. He's not just praying every once in a while, if he happens to remember. He's not praying only when they ask him for prayer. No, he says he's constantly in prayer, morning, noon, and night. When Paul writes to Thessalonians to pray ceaselessly, it comes out of a place of experience. Paul is praying ceaselessly, he's constantly in prayer for them. And notice, he's praying for specific people. They're not random prayers. The very specific prayers. And also notice, Paul is praying gospel-centered prayers for the church in Rome. He's thanking God that they're Christians. He's asking God for an opportunity to visit them and encourage them as Christians. Paul is filled with passion for Jesus and Jesus' gospel. That's what Paul is on about. That's the overriding theme of Paul's life. That's what he's going to live for, and that's what he's going to die for. And eventually, that is what he's going to die for. Paul is filled with passion. In verse 9, did you notice, he talks about his, quote, wholehearted service. 
your Bible translation might say, whom I serve in my spirit. That's another way of saying that Paul is giving his whole heart and his whole life to serving. In other words, he's fully devoted. He's all in. He's not half-assed about it. He's fully committed to serving Jesus with his whole life, mind, soul, spirit, with everything he has. He's going all in. In verse 11, he talks about how he longs to see them so that he can encourage them. Do you long to see your life group so that you can encourage them in their faith? Are you in a life group? He's passionate about the gospel, and that gospel passion drives his prayers. They're not random prayers. They're they're intentional prayers. His gospel passion fuels his prayer life. But Paul hasn't just prayed about these things. He's actually been making specific plans as well. He's been plotting and planning and scheming. He's lying awake at night, working out, figuring out how he can put into practice his gospel passion. For Paul, his gospel passion isn't just something in his brain or in his heart. He's figuring out, how do I actually practically live out my gospel passion? What does this passion mean for my life? How does it determine how I live my life? Look with me at verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Paul plans his life around Jesus and around the gospel. That's what his life is on about. His work plans, his travel plans, they all flow from his passion for the gospel. Paul's doing what he can to use his gifts to help other Christians. It's not about him, It's about the gospel, helping other Christians. Paul's doing what he can to share the gospel with non-Christians. He's deliberate about it. He's intentional about it. He makes plans. Paul is there. He sits down with a pen and paper or ink and parchment, whatever he had. He sits down and he makes plans about how he's going to do it. For Paul, it's not last night at church camp, cries, goes home, emotional high, and in three days you're not a Christian anymore. For Paul, he has this gospel passion which drives him to pray gospel prayers and to plan gospel plans. Paul is deliberate about living for Jesus. He's not just kind of arbitrary or I'll just kind of chill and I'll see what God drops on my lap. No, no, no. Paul is a planner. He's planning, how do I live out my gospel passion? It's pretty full on. It's pretty full on, not gonna lie. Paul defines himself by reference to Jesus Paul prays gospel prayers. He plans gospel plans. For this guy, his whole life is consumed by passion, gospel passion. His whole life is consumed by passion for Jesus and the gospel. So, why? Paul, you're crazy. Why all this passion? Paul goes on to tell us the reason for his passion. Paul says that he is obligated. That's the word he uses. Paul says he is obligated. In other words, Paul feels he has an obligation of some, it's a debt. He has a debt of some kind. That's why Paul is so eager to tell people about Jesus. He's obligated. Look with me at verse 14 and 15. He says, I am obligated 
both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Paul's passion, it flows out of his obligation. Paul's passion for living for the gospel, it flows out of this obligation that he has. He owes it to people. And in the next verse, Paul explains why he's obligated. He says, I'm obligated because of the nature of the gospel. It's about the gospel. Look at verse 16. He talks about, and this is why he's obligated, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is a power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Paul says, I'm obligated. Why? Because the gospel is God's powerful way of saving people. That's why. I'm obligated. Why? Because without the gospel, people will perish. I'm obligated to live this way for the gospel. Why? Because sinners who die in their sin will be damned by God for an eternity. That's why I'm obligated. How is the gospel going to save people? Paul goes on to tell us that the gospel saves people because in the gospel, God reveals his righteousness in the gospel. To be clear, not just his own righteousness, in the gospel, Paul says, God actually gives righteousness to sinners. In other words, he pardons sinners. He forgives people who put their trust in Jesus. He pardons people who give their life to Jesus. God declares them innocent, righteous. God declares them innocent the moment they place their trust in Jesus so that they stand before God righteous, sinless, forgiven. Even right now, if you're here today, and if you're not yet a follower of Christ, even right now, if you repent and fall before Jesus and confess him as Lord, you will be saved. You will be given this free gift of righteousness that God offers. For those of us who are Christians, as we pray and plead with God for the salvation of our friends, as we try and take the gospel to that don't yet have it, what we're pleading with God for is that God might give to them, that he might grant them righteousness, his righteousness, that God might forgive them through the gospel. Look with me at verse 17. The gospel is God's power for salvation. And then verse 17, why? For or because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And then Paul quotes from the Old Testament to back up what he's been saying. He says this, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Stop right there. Not going to lie, it's a bit dense. These last few verses are a little bit complicated, but I think it's important that we understand them because these couple of verses here, it not only explains to us why Paul wrote this letter, but it explains to us why Paul lives his life the way he does. The last few verses are a little bit complicated, but I want us to see what it's really talking about. Uh, the last few verses, they give us the reason why Paul is super passionate. And I think it's helpful for us to run backwards, run backwards through these verses. And I think when we run backwards through these verses, you'll understand the logic of what Paul is trying to say. Start at verse 17. We're going to go backwards. Look in your Bibles at verse 17. In the gospel, God reveals his righteousness. He forgives sinners. He pardons sinners. That means, verse 16, 
that the gospel is God's powerful way of rescuing us from his anger, from his righteous and holy judgment. And so, verse 16, that's why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 15, backwards, that's why Paul's eager to preach the gospel. You see that in verse 15. Verse 14, you go back. In fact, he's even obligated to tell people about Jesus. Friends, do you see the logic? Can you see the logic of what's on Paul's mind? He's working backwards. The saving nature of the gospel, it produces a certain obligation in Paul. Let me illustrate. It's a little bit like if you received the cure for cancer. Imagine. Imagine with me that one day someone comes up to you and says, and says hey, I'll give you this, a piece of paper. They say, here you go, it's a gift. On this paper is the cure for cancer, every cancer. It's for you. It's for you. And you've got, you receive it. You've got it in your hands. It can save people's lives. It can save family members from heartbreak. It can save millions and millions of people who are dying with cancer. You've got it there in your hands. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Would it be right to say, thank you, that's great. This will come in really handy if I ever get cancer. I'm going to pop it away in my filing cabinet at home. You know what? I might even laminate it. And, and, and I'll go back to it when I need it. Thank you so much. Is that the right thing to do? You can't do that. It's not right. You can't do that. You're obligated to share that good news with people that need it. The world, if you get the cure for cancer, if you get the cure for COVID, it comes with an obligation. You're obligated, unless you have some serious uh, difficulties, unless you've got some serious problems, if you're by and large a normal human, you receive something like that, you are immediately obligated. It's like you get a tip-off and there's, there's going to be an explosion somewhere, something crazy. You're obligated because of the information you now have to call someone, to call the cops, something, anything. You're obligated. Friends, Paul is working with the same kind of logic as he writes this. The gospel is God's powerful way of saving people, not just saving their lives, saving their eternal lives. Paul reckons that makes him obligated. That changes how he lives and how he orders his life. And that is why Paul is so passionate about the gospel. That's why it's transformed everything in his life. That's why it's turned his whole life upside down. That's why he's not ashamed of the gospel. That's why he's eager to preach the gospel. That's why he prays gospel prayers. That's why he plans gospel plans. That's why even when he describes himself, he describes himself as a slave of Jesus set apart for the gospel. Now, you're right. There's no doubt about it. Paul is special. Yes and amen. You're right. There's no doubt about it. Paul is a unique individual, for sure. You and me, we're not Paul. We're not going to go and write the New Testament. We're, we're not Paul. Paul was an apostle. There's no apostles around today. Paul saw the risen Lord Jesus. Paul was an apostle. The risen Lord Jesus himself commissioned Paul to be a preacher. That's not us. But I reckon the logic of these verses must apply to us as well. Why? Because my point is, I don't think it's about his calling. I don't think it's about Paul himself. I actually think if you were to ask Paul, he would say it's about the gospel. Paul says he's obligated 
to preach the gospel. Why? Not because he's an apostle, not because he saw Jesus, but because of the gospel itself. The nature of the gospel obligates Paul. Because the gospel is God's powerful way of saving sinners, because of that, it obligates Paul. Paul doesn't talk about his special commission. He doesn't talk about his unique calling in life. No, no, he talks about the gospel. Paul talks about the saving nature of the gospel itself that produces an obligation in him. Friends, that's got to apply to you and me as well. It must apply to you and me as well. Church, let me ask you right now two brief questions. Number one, do you believe that the gospel can save people? I'm asking you right now. I'm not asking the person sitting next to you. I'm asking you, you. Do you believe the gospel can save sinners? Okay, yes? Next question. Have you put your trust in Jesus as your Lord? If you answered yes to both those questions, you and me, we're in the same position as Paul. We're in the same position as Paul. You and I have got the cure for cancer, so to speak. It doesn't just obligate Paul, it obligates you. It obligates me. It obligates us as a church family. We owe it to a world that is facing God's righteous and holy judgment. We owe it to a world that is perishing to show them the message of the gospel. We owe it to them. We owe it to them because Jesus is the only way they can be saved. We owe it to a world that is facing eternal death. We owe it to a world that is perishing without Jesus because Jesus is the only way they can have eternal life and forgiveness. We are obligated by the gospel. Friends, if you really think about this, this is life-changing stuff. Friends, you cannot believe this Go and go away ordinary and unchanged. That's impossible. You can't believe this, the gospel, and just give nodding acquaintance to it. It makes no sense. It means you don't understand the gospel. If this is right, if the gospel is the truth, if we are actually Christians who have the gospel, then we have got an obligation. It should fill us with passion. It should turn our lives upside down. It should radically change our lives. It should radically reorder the priorities of our hearts if the gospel is real. So let's think about it. Applications. What does this mean for us today? Well, what we've just read in the first 17 verses, we see that for Paul, the gospel defines who he is. He's a slave of Jesus. Who are you? How do you define yourself? Do you define yourself by what you do? Do you see yourself as a teacher, a social worker, a lawyer, an analyst, a student, whatever you are? Is that what defines your identity? Or maybe do you define yourself by your family? Are you first and foremost a husband or a mom or an engaged person or a single person? Because if we're Christians, then that's all changed, hasn't it? Because if we're Christians, Above anything and everything else, we're first and foremost slaves of Jesus, right? If you're a dad, you're a Christian dad. If you're a mom, you're a Christian mom. If you're a worker, you're a Christian worker. If you're a uni student, you're a Christian uni student. Christian first. Who you are is different. So how you will be what you are and what you do has got to change. 
If the good news about Jesus is true, it changes who we are, it changes our identity, and it changes how we identify ourselves. Secondly, what about your prayers? As you can see in verse 8 to 12, Paul prays gospel prayers. He thanks God for people's faith. He prays and asks God for opportunities to encourage people in their faith. Does that sound like your prayers? Are you praying at all? In the words of the great Cory Ten Boom, don't just pray when you feel like it. Have an appointment with the Lord and keep it. Friends, if you're someone that's praying regularly and often, I think it's very easy to fall into the habit of praying, God bless me and my family and my dog and my job, amen. If you're someone who prays regularly, I think it's so easy to just slip into these routine prayers. It's so easy to pray every day something like this, God, thank you for saving me. Please help me to have a good day today, amen. But in light of the gospel, it's not good enough, is it? Not if people's eternal destiny is at stake. We need to get those prayer diaries out every day. We need to be praying for the people in our church. You need to be praying for the people in your life group. We need to be thanking God for their faith in Him. We should be praying that God will help them stand firm in the faith. We should be praying that we'll have a chance to encourage them in their faith. Friends, we need to be passionately praying for our family and friends and colleagues who don't yet know Jesus. We should be passionately praying for those people in our church that don't yet know Jesus. We should be fervently in prayer for missionaries and evangelists as they take the gospel out into the nations. Friends, we should be desperately praying for the more than 7,400 unreached people groups so that the Lord of the harvest can send gospel workers there. The high school room over there should be packed full every month as we have our monthly prayer meeting, not with the pathetic, pitiful 20 people who come to pray. Thank you, if you're one of those. Thank you for coming and praying. But can you see the problem? There are like 70, 80 of us in here hearing from God's word with the family, but there are 20 of us in there speaking to God with the family. Don't you think something is not quite right? And you can't tell me you're busy. If you know the gospel, you can't say there are more important things. It's once a month. There are Koreans that pray every morning together. We're not even asking for that. I'm convinced that many of our chemistry members are not seeing breakthrough and growth in their spiritual life because they refuse to pray with other believers. Because too many of us have believed in Satan's lie that it's you and God, don't worry about the rest. That is rubbish and it will kill you. If you're not praying with other believers, something is desperately wrong. Be careful what your next moves are. Please, repent. Please, change. Please, pray with the people God has given to you. Friends, when we think about the corporate prayer life and the prayer culture of chemistry, someone needs to say it, something is not quite right. We proclaim this gospel that apparently saves sinners We talk about the unreached people groups. We talk about discipleship. We talk about accountability. We talk about evangelism. Yet people don't pray together. Perhaps God is calling you today to re-examine your priorities. And perhaps God is asking you today through this portion of Romans 1, are you praying 
gospel prayers. Church, we need to be consistently praying passionate gospel prayers. Identity, prayers. Thirdly, what about our plans? What about our plans? As we can see in verse 13, Paul's planning gospel plans. His life is directed and shaped by his passion for the gospel. Does that sound like your plans? Does that sound like your plans for your life? Friends, I suspect that most of us follow the same plan as everyone else in the world, which is no particular plan at all, or get rich or die trying. Most of us, I think we live our lives and we just run from one emergency to the next. But again, it's not good enough, is it? Not if the gospel is true. Not if the message of Jesus actually saves people from hell. Not if the message of the gospel actually saves people from God's righteous and holy judgment. Friends, I wonder if for you, it's time to change plans. I wonder if it's time for you to start planning gospel plans. Here's something radical. I heard a pastor a while ago. He said that we live our lives back to front. Most of us, we find a job in the career that we want, and then we find a house that we like, and then we go looking for a church. This pastor says, we've got it all wrong. It's all back to front. You need to start off by finding a good church, a church where the Bible is faithfully taught, a church where you can serve people and be served. Next step, you find an affordable house nearby. Next step, you find a job that lets you pay for the house and live close to church that you can contribute to gospel ministry and serve in the church. Too radical, do you think? Or, most of us are young. Let me reword that in simple terms. Is your life about your ambitions and you sprinkle the gospel on it? Or is your life about the gospel and you reorder your life around the gospel? Are you after money and comfort or are you after the gospel? Friends, if the gospel is true, if you and I do believe this gospel, then surely I've got to have some gospel plans. Surely it's got to be making some difference in my life. Surely I've got to have some plan about how I'm going to spend my time encouraging other Christians. Surely I've got to have some plan about how I'm going to spend my money on gospel ministry. Surely I've got to have some plan about how I'm going to actually share the gospel with my friends and colleagues and family members. Surely I've got to have some plans. When's the last time you invited a friend to church? When's the last time you invited a friend to life group? When's the last time you explained the gospel to one of your friends? Are you planning to do it? Do you have gospel plans? Or are you running from one emergency to the next? Church, I think the logic of this passage is inescapable. You can't actually believe the gospel, but then not be passionate about it. If you're not passionate about the gospel, it's either you don't believe it or you don't understand it. You can't believe this gospel and then be silent. You can't believe this gospel and complain about a thousand things at church and not just get on with the mission. You can't not believe this gospel and then be ashamed of it or bored by it or unaffected by it. It makes no sense. Friends, you can't be a Christian and then be ordinary. No such thing. If the gospel is true, it needs to be the driving force in our lives. It needs to be the overriding purpose for our lives. It should change our identity. It should change our prayers. It should change our plans. Friends, if you believe the gospel, 
then let it change you. Let it transform you. May God, our Heavenly Father, transform us from the inside out as individuals and as a family to be passionate for King Jesus and his redemptive purposes. Let's pray. We're going to spend um, just a couple minutes in prayer and I want to give you a chance to pray as well. If God is convicting you of a certain sin, whether it might be worldliness or lack of passion or lack of gospel conviction, then why don't you spend some time now repenting, asking the Lord to give you, to heal you, to strengthen your gospel passion. Why don't you also pray for yourself that God's Holy Spirit would transform you to be passionate and sacrificial for the gospel. And then why don't you also pray for our church, that as a church, we might be passionate for the gospel too. Let's pray. Our gracious God, our our loving Father, we thank you and we praise you that you do have good news for us. We thank you that your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, has come and that he has lived and died so that we might be righteous before you, so that we can be forgiven of our sins and rescued from your anger and your holy judgment. Lord, we thank you that because of him, we now have forgiveness and eternal life with you. Our Father, please help us to understand this message of the gospel. Please help us to believe it. Lord, please help us to know our identity in you. Help us, Lord, to pray gospel prayers. Help us, Lord, to plan gospel plans. Father, please transform us into passionate disciples of our Lord Jesus, for we ask it in his name. Amen.